I'd like to share with you something from the Bible that I trust will be a great encouragement to you, especially if you are discouraged. I think it's always good to sometimes just look away from ourselves and focus on God and who He is. After all, if I look at myself too much, and I look at all of my weaknesses and my faults and my failures and all my disappointments, I can easily get discouraged. But I think if I can look away and look at God, His power, His grace, His goodness, His love, and look at God as the the, the worthy object of my love and my uh, affection and my worship, I think I can get encouraged real easily. And so tonight I would like us to think about trusting God's power. Some of the most uh, comforting words in the Bible is that little phrase I have there, God is able. Maybe when we're not able to do something or something seems impossible for us, it's good for us to look away from ourselves and to look away from the situation and to look away from the problem and see that God has the power. God is the solution. God can do what he chooses to do. And then there's this other uh, phrase that's often used in the Bible, and we'll look at some of these uh, instances tonight. It's a question. Is there anything too hard for God? Because we know the answer. No, no, there's nothing too hard for God. But let's see how that's played out in certain people's lives. And the first person I'd like to consider is Abraham. So if you will, go to Abraham. Uh, go, not to, go to Genesis. <laughs> go to Genesis uh, chapter 17. Hopefully we can at least consider Abraham tonight and one other character in the Bible as time permits. So go, if you will, in your Bibles to Genesis 17. God loves to make promises. And you recall how God made a great promise to Abraham and to his wife Sarah. You are going to have a son. And I'm going to make out of you, out of you and Sarah together, out of your union, out of your marriage, I'm going to make out of you and your descendant a nation that is as populous as the stars of heaven that has as many people as the granules of sand on the seashore. But guess what? Time was going by. No baby. And they're getting old. And they're well advanced the years in which they can have children. And so God appears uh, to Abraham and reminds him of who he is. And in reminding Abraham of who he is, God is reminding Abraham, don't forget, I, I, can, I can keep the promise. I, I can do the promise. You just trust me. You just believe. So if you're there in chapter 17, notice verse 1. So when Abraham was 99 years old, still no baby. You know, he must be getting kind of desperate. You know, God, I mean, I, I don't see how this is going to work out. So when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. Now why does God say that to Abraham? To encourage him. Don't, you know, it's like God saying to Abraham, don't you ever forget for one minute who I am. I am Almighty God. Now what does the word Almighty mean? It means Almighty. In other words, God has all might. He has all power, more power than you and I can possibly imagine or even think of. I am Almighty God. So, in light of that, then, God says to Abraham, walk or live before me and be blameless. In other words, live your life as if you're living in my presence, says God. In other words, you live with faith in me. 
You live righteously. You live, you walk, you conduct your life before me in the presence of this almighty God. And you be blameless. In other words, you carry out my will. So now, fast forward to the next year. In chapter 18, uh, Abraham is living his life before the Lord and being blameless. And he looks up and sees some visitors coming. So Abraham and Sarah, being the good hosts that they are, prepare a nice meal and ask them to sit down and eat. So we pick up the reading now in Genesis 18 and verse 10. Chapter 18, verse 10. And so this visitor that appeared uh, to Abraham, which we believe may be an angelic appearance, an angel appearing in physical human form, uh, verse 10, and he said, this uh, visitor, this perhaps angel, said to Abraham, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life, and behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. So Sarah was eavesdropping over this conversation between visitor and her husband Abraham. Now, verse 11. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old. Boy, don't you like how the, the biblical text is just, just really blatant, gets it right out there. Now, that just senior citizens. That just well advanced. They're old. <laughs> well advanced in age. And Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, still I have, shall I still have pleasure, my Lord being old also? She laughed. Oh, this can't be. It must be a joke. She laughed, by the way. You know, you know what her son's going to be called? Isaac, Isaac Yitzhak, which means laughter. <laughs> Sarah laughed. <laughs> and her son's going to be named Laughter. So she's, going to, she's not going to be able to live this down for the rest of her life. Verse 13. And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? She probably laughed in doubt laughed, uh, not thinking this could possibly happen. And then we have that question. Remember that question I have up here? Here it is, verse 14. This is what God speaks through the visitor to Abraham. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And the implied answer is no. Absolutely not. So then here's the message. At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life. And Sarah shall, not Sarah might, or Sarah could, or hopefully, no, Sarah shall have a son. Wow, God is good. Um, and then, uh, if you will, just look at Romans. Let's just see how this uh, story is, is um, testified to in the New Testament. If you will, go to Romans chapter 4. We want to see how the Apostle Paul uh, speaks of the legacy of Abraham. Uh, if you will, just go to uh, Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, this is known as the great faith chapter. Uh, Here the Apostle Paul is arguing that our justification and our acceptance with God is through faith in Jesus. And the Apostle Paul appeals to Abraham as a great example of faith from the Old Testament. Abraham believed the promise of God. God made a promise that he would send his son Jesus into the world. And God has kept his promise. That's why salvation is available to us. So if you're there now in Romans 4, um, notice verse uh, 19. Romans 4, verse 19, referring to Abraham. And not being weak in faith, 
he, that is Abraham, did not consider his own body already dead, uh, since he was about a hundred years old, in the deadness of Sarah's womb, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what God had promised, God was also able to perform. There's the ability of God. God is able. Abraham looked away from himself. He looked away from the deadness of his own body, being a man about, what, 99 or 100 years old, and he looked past the the age of his wife Sarah, being about 90 years old, I think. And he looked past all of that. He focused on God. God is able to do what he said he would do. Wow, that's the kind of faith and trust we need to have in God. Well, let's go to my next example. I think we have time for this one tonight anyway. Let's go to Jeremiah. I love this story. Jeremiah chapter 32. Uh, So go over to the prophet Jeremiah. Back to the Old Testament. I'll give you just a minute to find it so we can all look at this together. Uh, Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah is sometimes known as the weeping prophet. I'm sure he shed a lot of tears when he thought about what God was going to do to his people. And he probably shed a lot of tears, too, in view of the fact that he wasn't treated very well. Where we pick up our story, uh, Jeremiah was shut away in prison. You know how it was in those days. If you're a prophet and you speak the truth and the king doesn't like it, what does he do? He locks you up. Stop prophesying bad things about the king and his people. And that's what happens in those days. Um, so where are we here? Chapter 32. So let me just give a little bit of background here. So, God is pronouncing judgment against the covenant people. They have sinned, they have rebelled, they're not listening, they're not repenting, they're not doing uh, the, the, the works that God is pleased with. And so God has said, as, as he said in the covenant, I'm going I'm to judge you, I'm going to punish you, I'm going to spew you out of the land. You're going to go into captivity. And by the way, the Babylonian army is on the way. The siege mounds are being built. God also promised... I'm going to regather my people. I'm going to restore my people. I'm going to bless my people again like you wouldn't believe. So what God wants Jeremiah to do is go buy a piece of land. And that by purchasing that piece of land would be, would be a way of, of testifying that he believes in God. He believes not only the judgment is coming, but he believes that God is going to restore his people. Why buy a piece of land if the Babylonian is going to own it all? Why buy a piece of land if the Babylonians are going to come in and ruin the land and desecrate everything and God's people are going to be shipped off to captivity? But God said, hey, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to allow the captives to come back. And you're going to be in this land once again. So Jeremiah, go buy a piece of property as a testimony, as a witness that you believe in me and you believe good things are going to happen. So let's pick up the reading here. So uh, Jeremiah receives the order. Uh, He has an uncle's son who is offering a piece of land to Jeremiah. Uh, There is the law of the right of redemption, the right of inheritance, and Jeremiah qualifies as a family member. Uh, Jeremiah has the right and the option to buy this piece of land from a family member, from his uncle's son. So God tells him, someone's going to come, your uncle's son is going to come and offer you buy a piece of land, and God says to Jeremiah, you buy it. You give him the money, you sign and seal it, you do it all in front of the witnesses according to the custom and the law. But Jeremiah now has a prayer. He's a little bit baffled by all of this. So he has a prayer. And let's begin looking at the prayer in chapter 32, verse 16. 
chapter 32 and verse 16. So now when I, I, Jeremiah, had delivered the purchased deed to Barak, the son of Neriah, uh, by the way, Barak was uh, Jeremiah's uh, assistant or secretary, administrative assistant. Boy, I wish I had an administrative assistant. Anyway, uh, but now when I had delivered the purchase deed to Barak, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, saying, so now this is Jeremiah's prayer. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you to do. And now uh, Jeremiah goes on and thinks about God's greatness in the history of the covenant people. Verse 18, you show loving kindness to thousands and you repay iniquity to the fathers uh, into the bosom of their children after them, the great, the mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts. You are great in counsel and mighty in work, for your eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men, to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. You have set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt to this day, and Israel is among uh, uh, Israel, um, and in Israel and among other men, and you have made yourself a name as it is this day. You have brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, and with great terror. You have given them this land of which you swore to their fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. And they came in and took possession of it, but they have not obeyed your voice or walked in your law. They have done nothing of all that you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have caused all this calamity to come upon them. Look, the siege mounds. They have come to the city to take it. And the city has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans who fight against it because of the sword and famine and pestilence. What you have spoken has happened. There you see it. And you have said to me, Lord, you have said to me, O Lord God, buy the field for money and take witnesses. Yet the city has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans. You see what Jeremiah is saying there? Lord, you're great and you're awesome. There's no one like you. Jeremiah is remembering the awesome power of God in the history of the covenant people. And then Jeremiah expresses his bewilderment. Lord, you're asking me to buy a piece of land. They're already building the siege mounds to get over the wall of Jerusalem. The city's about to be taken. And Lord, you have asked me to buy a piece of land with money in the presence of witnesses. Yet the city has been given over to the Babylonians. It just doesn't make sense. Why are you asking me to do this, Lord? Nobody in their right mind would go out right now and buy a piece of land when the Babylonians are right outside the city and they're building the siege mounds to come over the wall and take us all away. Now, how does God answer? By the way, you have to admit, Jeremiah is very good at at enumerating and expressing the greatness of God. But he's just a little bit baffled as to why God would ask him to do this. So, verse 26. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. I am the God of all people. I rule over all the peoples on the earth. I am the God of the Israelites, and whether they realize it or not, I am the God over the Babylonians. I control all people, I control all nations. I am the God of all flesh. And here comes that question. Is there anything too hard for me? The implied answer is no. So the Lord goes on and reminds Jeremiah, yes, I'm going to judge my people. 
They're going to go into captivity. They will be punished for their sins. But I'm going to bring my people back because they're still my people and I'm going to bless them and I'm going to love them. And they're going to be back in the land. If you will, let's just pick up the reading now in verse 37 and see how this narrative ends. Verse 37. So God is still speaking to Jeremiah. Behold, I, God, will gather them, my people, out of all the countries where I have driven them in my anger, in my fury, and in great wrath. I will bring them back to this place and I will cause them to what? Dwell safely. They shall be uh, my people and I will be their God. Then I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. Now notice verse 42. For thus says the Lord, verse 42, for thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great calamity on this people, so I will bring on them all the good that I have promised them. You know, it's just as easy for God to bring all the calamity on them as it is to bring all the blessing. It's just as easy for God to bring all that blessing, that unimaginable blessing, as it is for Him to bring all the judgment. Whether judgment or blessing, neither is too hard for God. Just as I have brought all this great calamity on this people, I will also bring on them all the good that I have promised them. Verse 43. And fields will be bought in this land, of which you say, well, it's desolate, it's without man or beast, it has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans. In other words, that was an excuse not to buy the land. The situation doesn't look good. The present circumstances don't look good. Uh, Verse 44, men will buy fields for money, sign deeds and seal them, and take witnesses in the land of Benjamin, in the places around Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the mountains, in the cities of the lowland, and in the cities of the south. For I, God, will cause their captives to return, says the Lord. Nothing is too hard for God to do. We'll just have to end right here. I have more examples, but I think this is sufficient for this evening because I don't want to rush. Maybe there's a problem in your own life. Maybe there's been some difficulty. Give it to the Lord. There's nothing too hard for God. We don't don't, uh, profess to know what God is going to do in our lives, but I think these, these passages that we've looked at tonight tell us to pray. Give our lives to God. Give our problems to God. Nothing is too hard for God. He is the Lord God Almighty. He is the Lord of hosts. We need to remember who God is. And and as we look at our congregation here, our church, there's nothing too hard for God to do. God is able to build us up. God is able to help us grow. There's nothing here that God cannot do. We just need to make sure that we are walking before God and we're blameless. We need to ask God, God, what would you have me to do? What is my part? How can I best serve you? How can I give my heart and my devotion to you to support this ministry? So please be encouraged. We need to trust in the power of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for these examples from your word, from the life of Abraham and Jeremiah. And may we be encouraged tonight where there is discouragement among your people, Lord, tonight. I pray that you would bring a profound sense of encouragement as we look away from ourselves, as we look away from our problems, as we look away from our plight, and focus our eyes on you, the Almighty God, the God who is able when we are not able, and the God for whom nothing, absolutely nothing, is too hard to do. So Lord, hear our prayer, increase our faith, and help us to be zealous to love you, 
and keep your commandments. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Okay. Amen. Let's sing our final song. Uh, It's a prayer. Hymn number 45.